Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Mark de Battista on the topic Creative Sex in an Oversexed World. This May 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father Mark is a former assistant priest at St. Paul's Parish, Camden, and is now studying at the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. The, uh, just a, a word on the title. Um, in coming up with that, that title, really, it was meant to be seen as sexuality, because it's so obviously misunderstood, and the sex drive is particularly misunderstood, that... I want to present it and represent it in a way that God actually intended it. So it's meant to be creative. It's meant to be life-giving. It's meant to be something that is a source of energy for us that really is, uh, serves to charge our batteries and allows us to love. But of course, what so much of our society has done and our culture has done is turn into nothing but a bestial act that is used for exploitation and so forth and, and sometimes referred to as loving. So it's trying to retrieve something. And the, the talk is, again, it's in three parts. One, I want to spend the first part of the talk looking at some issues concerning dating or courtship and looking at the man's role in courtship or dating. I prefer the word courtship, but I'm going to use the word, the two words inter, in an in, interminglingly or um, inter, inter, interchangeably. Thank you. Thank you very much. Interchangeably. And uh, so that's the first one. The courtship, and I want to look at some of the dynamics of courtship. I want to look at some of the when uh, a courtship should end, when a courtship is actually heading in the right direction, and how do you know God's will in, in courtship? I mean, are we waiting for the big sound or writing to appear on the sky, the booming voice? How do we read the signs? So that's the first part of the talk. Second part of the talk is to look at some of the issues surrounding. Friendships with members of the opposite sex, which are non-romantic. Non-romantic. And this is again a big issue because while many people, most people are called to marriage, even those who are called to marriage, all other relationships with members of the opposite sex are meant to be brotherly, sisterly relationships. And I think we actually have forgotten how to have those sorts of relationships in a meaningful way. And yet we need them for our own emotional, psychological well-being, and wholesomeness. So that's part two of the talk, how to have friendships with members of the opposite sex that aren't romantic. And there's some of the challenges. I want to look at these as well, because, it's, again, it's not a, a... We're all wounded, and there's a profound wound within us, particularly men, but men and women, in the area of sexuality. And then the third part of the talk is really looking at a very rare kind of reality, relationship between men and women, but certainly existing in the church, called the spiritual friendship. And it's often the kind of friendship that you find between the saints, men and women. So, St. Francis de Sales, St. Jane Francis de Chantal, Blessed Raymond of Capua, uh, St. Catherine of Siena, and I'll mention other examples as well. So, that's where we're going. Okay? Please feel free to ask questions as usual, but uh, you can whatever say from at the end. So, courtship. What are the rules of courtship? Well, courtship has very definite rules. And again, our culture being what it is, and particularly with the onset of feminism in the 60s during the sexual revolution, and we've been through about three generations, if not more, of feminism and a mistaken feminism in many cases, although feminism, I think, has done some good things, certainly for women, but it's done a lot of damage, I believe. 
Nevertheless, it has twisted a lot of those rules about courtship that have existed and, and actually are deeply inscribed into the human heart. And if they are ignored, these rules, you get, well, not always catastrophe, but you get some real heartaches or heartache. Where uh, have I gotten most of my input from uh, this material, from this talk, particularly on, the, on uh, the, the whole thing of courtship? It's really been primarily through my four years of work with university students in the United States. I did 18 months at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, where I was just doing spiritual direction every day, for eight or ten hours a day with the university students, and two out of three cases was often involving courtship and dating and so forth, and then two and a half years as national chaplain for the Fellowship of Catholic University Students, after that based in Denver, Colorado, where we ended up writing a sort of a 25-page document on the dating fast policy that we used to have for our first-year missionaries. Okay, what's courtship all about? We need to court. Couples who are courting need to court with a purpose. So that's the first illusion that our society creates, that courtship is, doesn't have to have a purpose. It can be, well, I just want to get to know this man or this woman, and, and that's, that's what it's about, and get to know them in an exclusive way, in a romantic way, but I don't really have a purpose in what I'm doing. If that is my goal, if that is my ultimate end, then I will mess it up. I will mess it up, and I will end up hurting someone, or hurting many people. Some go through life uh, with a kind of a, the six-pack, or more than six-pack, the, the whole 24-case, B-case mentality. You know, I've finished with one can, and I'll use another one, and then another one, and another one. And it's very exploitative, but it's real. I met a, a fellow who would had a, recently who had a tremendous conversion. He's not a Christian. Uh, he believes in Christ. He believes in God. And... But he used to be a bouncer, and he was lived very promiscuously. And I, anyway, I asked him how many women he thought he'd slept with. And anyway, it was in the hundreds. He thought maybe even a thousand. But he just thought, I thought, wow, imagine how many people have been exploited. He'd been exploited, and he'd exploited others. So uh, a, an, another case that is different, I mean, that's exploitation in that very kind of rampant uh, mode. Another form of exploitation, a young family, I came across recently, three children, the man and woman have been together for uh, 10, 15 years, something like that. She desperately wants to get married. He's just lackadaisical, doesn't want to commit, doesn't in and out. And we're actually looking at the, uh, at the whole moral case there with this, with this couple whom I'm preparing for marriage. That's another source of exploitation. So, per dating must be with a purpose. If you don't get that purpose clear, then don't date. Isn't it simple? It's really simple. You know, if there's no purpose, don't date. Don't go out with someone. Now, sometimes you get the case where, or cases where, you're not sure. Do I really, is the Lord calling me to date this person? And again, when we ask that question, I want to make it very clear, that doesn't mean, uh, when, we, when I say, is the Lord calling me? I'm saying, what, I'm re what I mean is, not that there's a, it's like a vocation, it's got to be a very solemn, earth-shattering, you know, ringing of the bells in my heart and mind, 
No, it simply has to be an inspiration. The Lord has to move me to court this person, to want to do something for that person. If we're trying to listen to the Holy Spirit in a regular way, then we will sense him drawing us to this person, to that person, and the other person, whatever. And we might need to discern that for a bit and pray about it. Lord, do you really want me? Is this coming from you or not? And, and if we sense a confirmation, then to follow through with it. If not, then to say, okay, well, that's just a, an instinctive impulse or just a passing uh, crush or whatever, and, and that's it. It doesn't have to be any more than that. So not every attraction or desire that we experience if to, towards a member of the opposite sex is necessarily a driving from the Lord. The Lord, of course, said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, be fruitful and multiplying. And we can think that this being fruitful and multiplying is simply an instruction that, that you might give much in the same way that you give to someone in an intellectual kind of way. You know, look, what I want you all to do, we're going to do all the exercise now, we're going to go walk over to the church, and we're going to spend 10 minutes praying in the church, and then we'll do a little um, pilgrimage around the church, and then come back in. Everyone understand? Yes, good, thank you, off we go. That's an instruction. When the Lord gives the instruction to Adam and Eve, go, be fruitful, and multiply, he actually wrote that into their hearts. So it's not just some kind of cerebral instruction. He, he wrote it into their very fiber of their being, their human nature. It expresses itself through the sexual drive. This is what prompted then Pope John Paul II, before he was Pope, Carol Wojtyla, in his book Love and Responsibility, where he's got a small section there where he says the sex drive is a gift from God. Whereas many can easily be tempted to think that the sex drive, gosh, I wish it wasn't so out of control. Or I wish it was more like this or more like that. But the sex drive is a gift from God. Now, and, and this is often what is leading the attraction, right? And the aim is, is, there, is to make that sex drive into something creative, which means life-giving. Which doesn't mean I've got to go off and you know have children with every person, whatever. No, that's not the life-giving that I mean. It will mean that if we're called to marriage, it means life-giving by using it as a function of loving, or as a tool for loving. That genuine, authentic loving, which is always bound up with the truth. So, when we're dating then with a purpose, you might have the case where I'm not sure if uh, this person is, is one I'm supposed to be going out with. So, a boy wants to date a girl, and he really, and this is happening more and more now, so he'll take her out for a coffee. Or take out for uh, an ice cream somewhere, or let's go for a walk, or spend some time together. And he hasn't had the conversation with her because he's afraid. And increasingly, because I mentioned last week, more and more men are being told by our culture, you don't have to be men. You have to be. You can be boys. You can play up like you know. You have the perks of being men, but you can be boys. And, and our women are being told, you know, you don't have to be women. You can, you can have the perks of women and play up like the girls. So what do they do? They take a girl out and they'll lead her on. Now, the rule, one of the main rules of courtship is that it's the prerogative of the man to pursue the woman. And it's the prerogative of the woman to allow herself to be pursued by the man. I, I, that, that, I can't state that in... You know, emphatically enough. 
The man must pursue the woman. And I'll put it psychological reasons why this is the case. And the woman must let herself be pursued. It's a bit like the, the uh, bee and the, and the flower. You know, it, it, the flower allows the bee, it draws the bee to itself. But the bee must pollinate <coughs> the flower. And, and, and if, the if the bee doesn't come to the flower, well, there's nothing that the flower can do to force the bee to, to come to it. So they'll go along and they'll go out for three or four times together. And the woman's beginning to think, you know what, this is looking like courtship. But he's not talking about courtship. Because he, he doesn't want to commit himself to courtship. What's the woman supposed to do in such a situation? And I've counseled many women, I said, look, you ask him, how do you describe the nature of our relationship? Well, because while it's the prerogative of the man to pursue, the woman has always got the prerogative of saying, no thank you, no thank you. And if a man is pursuing, sorry, if a man is pursuing her, but he's not out, out with it in, being, in, in, in wanting to court her, then he is trying to do something in an underhanded way. And a woman should have no compunction asking him, saying, look, what's the story? What's the deal? How do you describe our relationship? In order to force him to make a decision one way or the other. And if he doesn't want to describe it, then to feel free to break it, to cut it off. Now, why is it that so important that the man be the one to pursue the woman? Because the man grows humanly, psychologically, through challenges. He has to overcome himself constantly. So whether they be moral challenges, in most cases, or physical challenges. And... And through that, he, he, what, does it, what does a man do in his psychological makeup? He fronts himself. And that doesn't mean he has to just brace himself and fraction and, and, and uh, ignore that he has vulnerabilities and weaknesses and whatever. No. He has to acknowledge those, own them, be at ease with them. And the most manly men, the most masculine men, are the ones who know how to acknowledge their weaknesses and carry them gracefully. It's not the machos who deny that they have weaknesses. They're not the manly men. They're the boys. They have very hollow egos. And you find out very easily because the moment you pop that ego, you'll get some reaction or they, they fall to pieces. Now, in, in having to pursue a woman, what does a man have to do? He has to overcome himself. He has to be courageous. He has to risk getting a no, thank you. And well, what if she doesn't? She, she's not interested. You know, what, what's that gonna? How am I gonna feel? It's gonna crush me, or mate? That's what's gonna happen. But there's another reason. So that's the way a man grows. But it's also because the way a man's heart follows is when he makes a decision. A man's heart is engaged through his will. He has to choose to pursue this woman. He has to choose to do this particular thing. Then his heart follows. Whereas a woman's heart, as I was mentioning last week, I mentioned last week, she lives emotionally. So a woman is never cut off from her thoughts. Her emotions may dominate and lead her, and her will might go more with the emotions than with the thoughts, but she's never apart from the thoughts. Even when a woman's emotional and she can't see things clearly, she's not completely oblivious to her thought processes. Whereas a man can actually be oblivious to his emotions, completely. A mature man's not, but a, an immature man can be completely oblivious. So the will will side with the reason, 
and he'll be working out of his head, but emotionally bereft. That's not emotionally bereft, disconnected from, from his emotions. So, you see, a man has to engage his heart through the will. If, it's not the, if that role is not respected, and the woman does the engaging and the pursuing, what do you think will happen? And again, many young women now are following this process in courtship. The guy thinks, great, she's after me, I'll go along for the ride. Thank you very much. And the man does. And he enjoys the ride. And then, three months down the track, seriously, this is how it happens. Three months down the track, and I used to watch the university students, and I'm thinking, silly girl, don't do that, you'll regret it. And, uh, but, and anyway, and they often did, but, and then learned the hard way. What would happen three months later, the guy grows sick of her. And then he says, look, I don't want to court you anymore. And she says, but she's heartbroken. But I thought we were getting on. I thought we were clicking and so forth. Yeah, I know, but it, I don't feel the same way. What's going on? His heart was never engaged, engaged in the first place because he never had to make a decision. But if she had let him make a decision, then his heart would have been engaged. So, women, let the men court you. Men, do the courting. In fact, I have a fellow I came across, and he's happily married now to the woman. But one of the problems, I was helping him going through some spiritual direction on his way uh, to marriage. And he was saying, it was as though my wife, or his wife now, there was a stage where she kind of didn't let him pursue her. And so he felt he, he didn't have to go after the prize. Because as I mentioned last week, a woman is like a buried treasure. But she has to allow herself to be dug out by the man. She cannot dig herself out. And frequently, a, man's, a woman's beauty and goodness is drawn out through that proper male attention, which she will first experience in her life through a good father. But then, and that sets the, uh, calibrates the whole lens, I suppose, of how she expects the kind of male attention that she will pursue. If she's had a bad father, then she will be calibrated by that. And unless there's a conversion in her life, then, sadly, she will carry on in that way. And, and the cycle is, is reproduced and, and replicated down, down the, whatever, down her, through her, uh, her own life. So, so that's the, the thing about the, the courtship side of things. Now, what happens? The man may not always be the first one to be interested in the woman. What if it's the woman who's interested first? And, you know, what's, what's she supposed to do then? You know, how's she going to attract the attention of this fellow? And, and there are two extreme positions here, and I'm going to state them, but neither of them are right. One is seduce, which obviously is wrong, you know? I mean, you'll get a man, but you won't get the kind of male attention that you really want and desire. Honor, service, love, appreciation, you'll get something else. The other extreme is, oh, well, I'll be a flower pot, and I hope he notices me, you know, and he walks past, no, no, this way, look, right, you know, I'm here, I really like you, please look this way, I, my heart is crying out for you, and, and you see, now that doesn't work either, because 
you know, some men can be pretty thick at the best of times. So, with all respect to my brother man here, you know, but we, we don't always pick up on the signals. So, what has to happen? There's obviously some area in between. Now, for every luring mechanism, I'll use that word for the... I can't think of another word. But for every luring mechanism that God has given to a man, he's given woman about five or ten. Okay, so women have the charm. They have more things at their disposal. They're the masters of subtlety and everything, you know, crescendoing, intensity. So women use that. That's part of your beauty, part of who God has made you to be. So what do you do? If a woman's interested in a man first, Organize things, organize parties, organize gatherings. Make sure the guy you're interested in is also invited. You know, that, that's a very important thing. Make sure when he's talking, you're showing interest in him. You know? Now, eventually, the guy will hopefully get the, the message, oh, you know what, no one else seems to be interested in my conversation, but she's always there, you know, and she's always really, you know, riveted by what I have to say, you know, I, I wonder what's going on there. Now, eventually, eventually, enough signals, you've got to give off several, the women have to give off several signals, but if after you've given off five or so signals, ten signals, without robbing him of Without being so obvious, and I'll talk about what I mean by that in a minute. If you've given you know, your five or ten signals, and there's no response, that's the woman's answer for no thank you. I get the message, but I'm not responding. And then, to conclude, rather than feeling crushed, the woman not, shouldn't conclude, oh, I'm not beautiful, I'll never have a boyfriend, I'll never get married, da 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 No, she should conclude, Someone else is there for me. There are plenty of fish in the sea. You know, or whatever. Some, something, something along those lines. The messages that a woman gives off cannot be so obvious that they defy doubt. Okay? Or, or that they, they require no further uh, discernment, no reflection. Neither can they be so subtle that they can't be recognized. That's the flower pot mentality. <laughs> But sometimes those messages can be so over the top that the fellow feels he hasn't had to make a choice. And if the man doesn't have feel that he's got to make a choice, he won't make one. So he'll go along for the ride. That's why the messages that a woman gives off, it's very important, they can be interpreted in one of two ways. Yes, she's interested in me, or... Oh, no, she's just being kind, or there could be some other explanation. So, oh, a birthday card comes my way, or uh, just a greeting, or whatever. Okay, she could just be being nice, or she's actually interested in a relationship. The man has to make that decision. If he doesn't, now you give him several messages, but if he doesn't have a choice, he won't make a choice. And so then his heart won't be engaged, and you're making a rod for your own back. How should courtship then proceed? Courtship is a discernment for marriage. That's the purpose of courtship. It must always be that. Now that doesn't mean that day one you decide to court someone. It means, listen, this has got to be the right person, so I'm, I'm not going to court them unless I think I can marry them. And, well, that, that's crazy to, to expect, to put that expectation upon yourself unless you have some divine knowledge you, you're going to set yourself up for a lot of heartache. So, what you should be asking yourself is, 
if this relationship went to marriage, am I gonna, am I prepared to see it through? In other words, is there an openness that it could go there? And if the answer is yes, yes, go on, carry on with it. If the answer is, uh, I don't think I'm ready to marry, then don't start the process. It's dishonest. It's hurtful. It's irresponsible. It shouldn't be engaged in. If I am not ready to marry, I shouldn't be courting. I can have friends of the opposite sex, but make sure they're non-romantic friendships. I'll talk about that in a minute. But courtship is with a purpose, and it should be with a purpose. I'm discerning marriage with this man, this woman. Any doubt about that? Okay. So, when the courtship, how often should a couple court? How, you know, there's, there's relationships that are conducted um, where the people live a block apart, where they live right next door to each other. There's relationships that are conducted, through, you know, where they, they live hundreds of kilometers apart. And I'm not saying one way is better than another, because there's been so many successful courtship relationships conducted over hundreds of miles, hundreds of kilometers. So, through letter writing, especially, and then you know, a lot of phone calls in our own age and, and so forth. Obviously, you need to spend some quality time together. But quality time, or the amount of time spent with the, with the person discerning marriage, doesn't mean that it's, it's necessarily the best discernment process. You're all familiar with the, uh, the, the, the statement or the, the saying, distance makes the heart grow fonder. Mm -hmm. And, and that, why? What, what's all about that? You see, because it makes you yearn for the person. It makes you long for them. And it makes you make a decision for them. And if you're not prepared to make that decision for that other person on a regular basis, then you're not going to be making that decision for them if you ended up marrying them. One of the common mistakes spouses make when they marry, they, everything will be fixed up. You know, oh, I'll change it. I'll change her. Yes, my foot, you'll change them, you know? And, and, and it just doesn't happen. And, and as it was explained to me in a humorous way by uh, a woman who'd been married now for, I don't know, 20 years or something, but had a very bitter first marriage, a disappointing first marriage, and got a, a decree of nullity, she says, well, Father, it's so easy to think that, that you can change them. Because when you're coming down the aisle, what do you see? You see yourself, you see the altar, and you see the person. So I alter you. And, uh, and, and so, you know, we can fall into that silly thinking and subliminally. It, it, that's, the, that's the danger. So, what has to keep on happening, you know, what, what, after a while, after the honeymoon period, what, what starts to happen? Can start to happen. Doesn't have to. In, in married couples, they take each other for granted. And as far, and so far as that happens, it's the beginning of the end. It doesn't mean that a couple will separate. They can live in a dysfunctional marriage for 50 years, and I've seen this too. And, you know, but that's a sad reality. Why? Because it's a taken for grantedness. The man has to, the husband has to constantly keep on wooing his wife. He has to constantly draw her out of herself. It's the role of a man. If a man is left alone, he will fall into his selfishness. On the other hand, a woman has to constantly seek to respond to her husband. And it requires mutual sacrifice on both sides. But if, the, if they think that the task is, is finished once they've exchanged vows and had their, court, had their honeymoon and, and so forth, then they're, they're setting themselves up for heartache. 
It's like when a priest thinks, oh, well, I've done my seminary, I've got ordained, and everyone lives happily ever after. Rubbish, you know? And a priest has to constantly keep on spending himself, spending himself. And as you get a bit older, that spending yourself generously becomes a bit harder. Because the energy levels aren't always as great. And you've got to you know, take care of yourself and whatever, but you've constantly got to keep overcoming the selfishness. So, back to courtship. What else has to happen, or one of the good criteria of courtship is letter writing. I know it's not done very often. I know you probably think that it's, oh, that's a nice kind of Charles Dickens thing to do, but really, should we be doing that now? I would encourage it. I, I saw that we used to encourage this overseas in the, in the US, and when, when the couple would go on a dating fast. And the dating fast was basically this. New missionaries would come on board, and they would, that first year, they would, we'd ask them to take a step back from the relationship. If they weren't dating at all, we would say, okay, don't date, don't start dating. And, uh, but if you are dating someone already or courting someone, then take a step back. What that looked like, we left it up to the couple, but, uh, you know, we gave them lots of, uh, lots of hints of how that could be done. But the point is that you're taking a step back. So things aren't exactly the same as before, but you're not taking so much of a step back that's going to put an unbearable strain on the relationship. And we found one of two things happened by the end of that year. Either that couple were confirmed in their vocation to marriage, or they realized that God didn't want them to be married. It, was, it became very simple. Why? Because if they're in the truer friendships, the, the, the solid substance was consolidated. And as they had less time with each other, they were prepared to put the sacrifice, which comes from love, into making that contact with each other. So particularly through the letter writing. Now letter writing, handwritten letters especially, not email sort of stuff, although that's, that's good too, but handwritten letters, why are they particularly good? You know, when's the last time you've written a handwritten letter? A little survey here. When's the last time? Handwritten letter. Today? Right? You're from a generation that writes handwritten letters. Yeah. Um, yesterday. Very good. Do you do that often? Oh, yes, I do. Very good. You're unusual. For our generation. And that's a good thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I know, but I've written handwritten letters, and I, and I do it, you know, maybe once every few weeks or something, every couple of months at least, but it just takes more of a will. It's more effort. So when I've written a letter, you know, turn the page over, right again, what's it doing? It's engaging my will to that person. It's, it's showing my love for that person in writing that letter for them. So if I'm calling someone, I'm prepared to write them a letter once a week, or twice a week, or every day even. You know, if we're writing five letters a day, then we're, you know, they're not doing their work. But you see, there's a lot of love being put in there. So what's it doing? The heart is engaging more and more. And it's all about engaging the heart. Now, for every letter that a woman will write, sorry, for every letter that a man will write, a woman will write about five or ten. Okay? <laughs> That's kind of a proportion. So, women don't expect to get as many back uh, as you would write. If you do, and then you've got an unusual man, which is great. And, uh, unusually good. So, writing letters. Also, in, in courting someone to when you leave that person's presence, I'm taking for granted that of chastity. 
Okay, and, and I'll, maybe I should say a few words about that. What's chase? What's not chase? But um, it's to be left when you're leaving them wanting more, wanting more of them, wanting more of their company, of their heart. In other words, don't drink the cup of pleasure, the good pleasure, being with them to the end. Why? So you always be left desiring them. When you satiate the cup of their com the companionship uh, to the full, you will risk taking them for granted. Now, you might say, well, how does that change then when you marry them, if it leads to marriage? In marriage, there are plenty of sacrifices crafted into the very life so that you will not get enough of them. But in the courtship process, a lot of those sacrifices are often hidden because you're, you're, um, the, the couple are just so deeply enjoying each other. Now, that's why I love it when couples do have arguments as well when they're courting, not for the argument's sake, but in order to resolve and learn how to resolve the, the, the tension between them. But that's just a good principle to bear in mind. That, you know, to, to kind of put a curfew for yourself. Like I said, 11 o'clock, midnight, whatever, you know, and that's, that's going to be the thing. Chastity is obviously crucial, critical, it's crucial. Without chastity, you can't discern. When our Lord says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's not just about in the next life. That's so that we'll, we'll be able to see God even in this life. And, and how do we see God in this life? Well, it means we'll discern His will. We'll, we'll see things clearly. As so, you know, St. Paul says, all other sins are outside the body. Unchastity is against the body. And sins against chastity, I think no sin blurs our vision more profoundly than sins of chastity. Whereas on the other hand, when we are chaste, it's amazing how clearly we see things. So, living chastity. Now, what's chastity mean? Well, obviously, the, uh, we know what the the extreme kind of um, kind of things of unchaste act, the marital act, is clear, and things that that by degrees lead to that. So, impure touching, all those kinds of things. But what about passionate kissing? Where does that fit into the whole thing? And I would say, passionate kissing does not belong in courtship. You know, sometimes called wet kissing, French kissing, whatever you want to call it. But passionate kissing, so just make sure we're all on the same page here. It does not belong, it belongs in marriage. Why? Because, whereas not all kissing belongs in marriage, there's some kissing that's very appropriate in courtship and in engagement period. Because in passionate kissing, the, as I mentioned last week, the man is ready for sexual intimacy in seconds. The woman will take longer, but how does a woman's heart get engaged? Through the emotions. And, the, and passionate kissing will engage the emotions in a profound way. So it's the thin end of the wedge. It's the top of the slippery dip. And then it's very hard to, to stop from there on in. So does that mean all kissing is prohibited? No. There is appropriate kissing. Kissing on the lips. No problem at all. Keep the lips closed. And keep it sealed. But, but, but kiss, kiss in that way. And, and, and then another rule too about chastity is have enough sensitivity of conscience 
so that whoever starts to be aroused, first, that's where the couple stops showing the affection, draws a line. So if that means sitting in a in the basement or in a lounge room and the lights are off and it's going to be an occasion of difficulty for you, then okay, keep the lights on or keep them a bit brighter or something like that, you know? If uh, sitting this close next to each other is going to be a problem, if, if intertwining your legs together is going to be a problem, don't do that, you know? Um, I remember a woman telling me once, uh, she's happily married now, but she was telling me, she said, oh, um, she's talking and, and her husband's a top fellow and almost a saint, but uh, she's saying, Oh, when it's coming to that time of the month for her, she always felt she wanted to be closer to him. And I said, that's great, eh? Because that's what you're that's what's supposed to happen, you know? But it's... You see, these rules, I hate giving such concrete rules, but because they don't always apply for every case in every time and place. They're guidelines. And so each couple in courting must find their own guidelines, you know? What was... A problem in the first three months of courtship may not be after 18 months. Why not? Because part of courtship is you're learning to be physically comfortable in the other person's presence, unless it's a long-distance relationship. And as you become physically comfortable, a, a, a gentle embrace or a, a reaching out, holding of hands, doesn't send the other person's heart fluttering. In the beginning it might, but not later on. And, and so there's, um, you know, but, but if in the beginning it's going to lead to arousal, what, okay, well, let's just be a bit easier with those sorts of things, you know? Um, anyway, so I think I've said enough on that side of things. When, when do a couple know that, that uh, in fact, God is calling them to, uh, to marriage? Well, obviously, their love for each other is deepening. They are beginning to talk about marriage now, very openly. And, and, and they're, the mature in their thinking, you know, so they, 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 they want to proceed along this line. Well, that's, I suppose, the clear-cut case. Once they reach that point, well, what should, what should happen? Um, should a, a couple, okay, the fellow is still finishing his university, or we don't have enough money, or, well, they're all issues that they have to sort out, and eventually they have to make a decision. Should a couple delay marriage? because they're not yet ready to bring children into the world. And you'll get some moralists or, or priests who would say, no, unless you're prepared to be open to children, then you shouldn't bring, you shouldn't get married, because part of marriage means openness to children and so forth. But openness to children doesn't mean that we've actually got to bring a child into the world. And so it may well be uh, the right thing to do for a couple to get married and beyond natural family planning straight away, even though for, for good reasons. And the Humanae Vitae, when Pope Paul VI wrote that letter, in the English translation, it talks about serious reasons. But in the Latin, it's, uh, it talks about justus, good reasons, not serious reasons. They don't have to be great reasons, they have to be good reasons. So whether economic, um, psychological, health, or, uh, or sociological reasons, so good reasons. Not, not, um, not serious reasons necessarily. Justus means means just, a just reason. So in canon law, a just reason means any good reason. So it, it shouldn't be, oh, well, we're saving up for our next boat. 
or for our boat. That, that, no, that's not. Uh, or we haven't finished paying off our house. Hang on a minute. You know, what's more precious, a child or a house? Okay, now, you obviously need the house, you need it to pay things off, but, in other words, to be generous. And that's the other thing. There's kind of overarching reasons, uh, and, and I mean discernment and prayer in the presence of God, but then the church has specified them in those four reasons. And I remember having a, a debate, actually, with a dear friend of mine about this, because she thought that the four reasons were actually, and she's very faithful to the church, her and her husband, she thought that the four reasons uh, I was applying them in a very strict and narrow sense. And she's saying, no, I think just discernment by the couple in the presence of God is, is enough, you know, and it shouldn't be that way. And I said, well, if the church saw it fit to give us more precise reasons and more, uh, yeah, so more tailored reasons rather than the general ones, then we need to go to the specific reasons as well because that's where the church is guiding us. But if a couple feel that now the intensity of the relationship had reached such a point that it's actually becoming an occasion of sin to be with each other for any length of time, and the only way around it was actually to, to start not seeing each other, which would be counterproductive, then yes, you should get married. You should get married and live natural family planning until such times as, okay, well, we can assume uh, bring children into the world. Okay? Uh, I know a couple, again, overseas, and in the last, I think, eight months of their, uh, of their courtship, of their engagement, I don't know how long they were engaged for, but they were living, their first home was a caravan. And they couldn't be, they wouldn't risk being in the same caravan together. Uh, they were bringing things and decorating it and all that sort of thing, preparing it. They couldn't risk being in the same caravan because they just couldn't trust themselves with each other. So, which I thought was, was very honest, because it, it, courtship leads to honest, deep knowledge of ourselves. And so they would call each other to make sure that they're not going to be in there. And, and that was their way of coping with it. Now, that's not going to be everyone's problem. It may only be, you know, be very few. When does a couple... So, courtship then leads to self-knowledge. And before anyone... I should have said this at the beginning. Before anyone should court, they should know themselves well. They should know themselves very well. Because you can't give yourself to another in courtship unless you know what you're giving. Now that doesn't mean we know ourselves in the crystal clarity that God knows us. That'll only be in heaven. But it means we need to have a good knowledge of ourselves. This is why teenage dating is stupid, is wrong. I, th I, I completely frown on it. And there is, a, again, as part of our culture, you know, the 13 and 14 and 15 year olds are, uh, are dating and, and so forth. And that's all part of the whatever. It's all a really good thing. And, and it's all cute. And, and, and then they look wonderful together. I think it's actually positively harmful for the young, young teenagers. Why? Because it does not allow the young men and women, young men and women in, in uh, question, to actually know members of the opposite sex as friends, as friends. And the courtship relationship calls of necessity for an intensity, an emotional intensity, that a 15-year-old in our culture is usually incapable of handling. And it can easily send someone into a complex about themselves or a rejection thing. So many of our teens are just immature. And in our culture, we've extended adolescence well into the 20s. So if anything about courtship, I'd say raise it, raise the age for courting. 
rather than lowering it. So, and that, that's my basic objection to that. And also, that most of our teens haven't yet learned how to safeguard and master their own sexuality in, in a chaste way. And yet now they're putting themselves into an intense emotional relationship, psychological relationship with a member of the opposite sex, discerning marriage together. There's no way that teens can take on the possibility of marriage. So, can this relationship really end up there? Okay, we're 14. Huh? No, is the answer. And, and so we won't even start. And a responsible parent will forbid his or her children from going down that track. An irresponsible parent, unfortunately, will turn a blind eye or even uh, aid and abet it. Okay. When should a couple call it quits? Every courting relationship, if it has been respectful of the other person, if even if it doesn't work out, should be a positive experience. Yes, there will always be some kind of heartache. I think it's relatively rare, or at least certainly less common, that a couple just mutually come to an understanding and say, you know what, I don't think this is working out. We, excuse me, we need to head in, in different directions. We, you know, we can be friends and, and so forth and that'll be fine. Usually one will want to cling on. The other one realizes before the other, uh, sometimes it'll be the man, sometimes it'll be the woman, that realize before the other that, okay, this is not heading anywhere. So what, what, what to do? Transparency is the only way. But I know when we're close to someone, to be transparent, especially in a critical way, a way that they're not going to, a way that they're not going to, that's critical of the other person, is not going to be easy to say. Even after couples have been married for many years, to say something that's critical to the spouse is not easy. Is not easy. And if I did a survey here of the married people in the in the audience here tonight, I'm sure you'd agree. Now. Sometimes people don't care, and they'll say things in a blunt way. No, we shouldn't. We should do them with charity. But, in courtship, that, that needs to be said. And to not say them is dishonest. It's, it leads the person on, and only delays the inevitable. And we can't do that. It's, it's too much at stake there. Some will say, okay, well, let's give it another six months, let's give it another three weeks, let's give it three months. Couples can work all that out, and they can seek their independent advice, speak to priests, speak to parents, speak to people they trust, level-headed people, and get their proper guidance, and then go from there. But they need to know when to call it a day. However, once they decide to call it a day, typically, one or the other will want it to remain good friends. Now, if in the courtship, the, the, the friendship is this close, and being good friends is being this close, you can't move from being five centimeters apart to being ten centimeters apart until you've been thirty centimeters apart. Do you understand what I'm getting at? You can't move from this intimacy and just take one step back. Because the relationship it doesn't have a future as a romantic relationship. If it's going to have a future, it's as a, as a brotherly-sisterly relationship. But the heart, you see, has reasons that reason knows not of, Pascal said many years ago. And, and so it, it, it very easily happens that there's a short-circuiting that continues to happen. It's like when you bring the North and South Pole magnets together, and when you bring them close enough, 
eventually they just slide out of your fingers and, and you, you know, they'll pull your fingers together, even though you might try to bring them together only very gradually. And the same thing continues to happen. So a couple, once they see clearly that they're no longer called to continue discerning marriage together, they need to have a cooling off period before they can resume some kind of a friendship. What does that look like? Each couple will find out their own way. Some will say, okay, well, let's, they're used to calling each other every day and spending two days a week together. Well, say, okay, let's just call each other once a week. And there's going to be a heartache there. Or we'll call each other once a month. Or whatever. They'll work it out. They'll work out what's necessary. But it needs to have a, the, the, the break. Okay, moving on to brotherly sisterly relationships. Gosh, I spent too much time on the other, on the courtship. But anyway, how do we form those brotherly sisterly relationships? <clears throat> I said, most people are called to marriage. Some are called to celibacy. But regardless whether it's marriage or celibacy, most of our relationships with members of the opposite sex are actually going to be brotherly sisterly relationships. And God actually wants us to have these relationships. It's naive and foolish and very restrictive to think that God just wants us to have a member of the, uh, friendship, an intimate friendship with a member of the opposite sex if we're called to marriage. And if you're called to be a celibate, well, sorry, that's, uh, that's not part of your calling. And so you just, you, you don't have friendships with members of the opposite sex. That is actually disastrous. It's disastrous. It's asking for real problems. It's thinking that somehow our sexuality is a bad thing and it needs to be kept locked up in a bottle. If you lock it up in a bottle, I'll tell you what will happen, you'll explode. And that is what happens sometimes. You, and you, you see it in people, and it comes out in distorted ways. So what we need to know is that this, the Eros energy that's within us, and Eros, as the Greek, the Greeks defined it, I mean Plato, who is a sort of, we might say that the founder really of modern philosophy, of, of philosophy, ancient philosophy, even though the others before him, he defines eros as the drive within us for the true, the good, and the beautiful. The true, the good, and the beautiful. Whereas our own culture says, what's eros, what's erotic energy, is just simply the sexual urge. Now, it's interesting, both Benedict and before him, John Paul II, in his Theology of the Body, Benedict in his uh, letter, Deus Caritas says, talk, God is love talks about eros and how erotic energy which is a, there's a, it's a love there and the Greeks had four words for love and eros love is sexual love must be brought to maturity into self-sacrificing love and transformed into agape which is what self-sacrificing love is all about whenever we are called in all the relationships that we have through the virtue of chastity with members of the opposite sex and the same sex. Those relationships must always, they're always sexual. And here I'll make a distinction between sexual and genital. Sexual and genital. Genital relationships are belong exclusively in marriage. But all other relationships are sexual, whether we like them or not. And I mean sexual now in the sense of masculinity and femininity. I cannot help but relate to all of you as a man. Having a collar around my neck doesn't make me androgynous. It makes me, still makes me, I hope makes me more a man. You know, a nun wearing a habit doesn't make her into no longer a woman. 
she remains a woman and she loves with her femininity. And so, and, and that means when we're loving, we're loving with our sexuality. Now, we either see this and own it in a proper way, or we, we somehow see it as something that we have to divide ourselves or separate ourselves from. And if we do this, I assure you, you'll be setting yourself up for a life of frustration. So we need to own our sexuality. Now, how does that happen? Well, it takes a long time. When can we ever say a man and woman are sexually mature or is, is sexually mature? Well, when we're in heaven. I remember being told as a young seminarian that when do temptations against chastity and purity stop? You know, half an hour after you're in the grave. And, you know, and, and it's, you see, now, obviously that's a slight exaggeration, but I remember, you know, my father, God rest his soul, tell me, and he was in his early 60s at the time, he'd say, oh, you know, Mark, when you're older, your body sleeps. And my father was always very discreet in talking about these things. But I knew exactly what he meant, and he didn't have to go into any further detail. So your body does sleep as you get older, and, and that, that sexual drive is no longer expressed through that passionate way. But that doesn't mean that the proper integration that has to happen has actually happened. So what do I mean by integration? Sexual integration. Sexual integration means incorporating that sexual drive within us, that erotic energy, into our way of loving, so that we can love truly from our hearts. So we can love from our hearts. It's how our Lord loved. It's how Our Lady loved. You know, Adam and Eve, in fact, loved each other in that proper way. Adam and Eve weren't wearing any clothes in the Garden of Eden. And I've wondered about this. I think, you know, their love was proper at that moment. And it was a properly ordered love. It was a perfect love. They were in communion with God, in communion with each other. Just as a question, did Adam go around walking, sexually aroused all the time? Because Eve's there. My question, my answer is, I don't think he did. I don't think he did. Because his sexual, sexuality was completely integrated under his reason. And so he would be sexually aroused and Eve would be sexually aroused when they decided to come together in that way. But when they weren't, they would have loved each other and as companions, as helpmates. Did our Lord need to wear clothing? I don't think he did. He wore clothing because of respect and modesty for everyone else and so forth. But our Lord had a complete mastery of his own humanity. So sexually, there was no brokenness there. Our Lady was the same. She'd wear clothing because of modesty and so forth. But was it necessary? No. Will we wear clothes in heaven? We won't need to. Now perhaps we will, out of memory really, or, or uh, keeping in mind our experience upon this earth. But we certainly won't need to wear clothing. And we will look upon each other, or could look upon each other, and love each other with a perfect love of God, as brothers and sisters. This is so foreign to us, because it's just, this is how far we are, you see, from a complete and proper sexual integration. So this sexual integration happens very, very gradually. And, and it's important that when we have friendships with members of the opposite sex, that we guard our hearts. Especially if we find that person very attractive. Sometimes the attraction we have to a member of the opposite sex is, is an attraction to their heart. It's not, there's no physical attraction. And in a sense, they're safer relationships because they nourish us emotionally 
and psychologically, but it's, it's not a sexual attraction. But if there's a sexual attraction there, does that mean, hang on, we shouldn't risk having a friendship with that person? Well, it means, to, it means we need to be more, I guess, guarded and, and discreet. But it also means that we find something very life-giving. Very life-giving. Now, we need to know what it means to discern whether it's properly or truly life-giving or whether I'm confusing with simply it gives me a nice warm feeling. That's something we won't discern straight away. But it will become apparent to us uh, over time because we will ask ourselves questions, am I willing to sacrifice myself for this person? When I'm having a blue with this person, do I still love them and care about them? Just simple questions like this. That tests the authenticity of those sorts of friendships. But we need brothers and sisters. Okay? Uh, how are those... How are those um, brotherly and sisterly relationships then carried out? I mean, can we go out for coffees? Can we have meals together? Those sorts of things. You'll find your own way. But bear in mind that we need brothers and sisters, but we also need to guard our hearts in carrying out those friendships. And as we get older, our capacity for these friendships, I believe, increases. I believe increases. But something must also happen for that to increase. I'm assuming as we get older, yes, our passions become calmer. But also, we must grow in, in our human and emotional, especially, maturity. And emotional maturity is not something that happens automatically. I mean, I was talking to a, a, a woman who was just separated recently from her husband, just before I got here. And it's interesting, I mean, I did six months of marriage counselling with them. But, and after I, that wasn't going anywhere, I sent them to a, a psychiatrist I knew and trusted, and they spent, I don't know, several months with him, and that wasn't going anywhere. And then, you know, it, was a, it just was becoming very abusive, the relationship and, and so forth, so it just couldn't last. But, I realized after a while, I thought the fellow in this case had the emotional maturity of a ten-year-old. And what had happened in him, somehow, some wound had happened there, and perhaps the psychiatrist couldn't figure it out. But I'm sure if you went under some deep hypnotherapy, they could locate what the wound was. At the age of 10, and I'm picking the figure 10, but something happened and he stopped growing emotionally at that point. So now he's 45 or 46, was married for 24 years, and he's still in denial. He still thinks she's going to come back through the door. And that's just not going to happen. And, and it's just a blockage there. And it's interesting, he's passed the same emotional blockage onto one of his sons. They had two sons. So, you see, emotional maturity isn't something that just happens automatically. We assume it does, but it doesn't happen automatically. And it needs to... Often what leads to emotional maturity is that constant willingness to, to live through the pain, not deny it, not pretend that it's not there. And women, I must say here, are better at coping with emotional pain than men are. But men have to learn and can learn to do this. Uh, when, then, as you get old, I mean, I'm talking now a lot older, say people in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, can have many friendships like this, okay, with, with brotherly sisterly friendships, because they offer, if, if they have reached a certain maturity and because obviously the passions are much calmer.
Then now to move to the third part of the of the talk on spiritual friendship. Spiritual friendship, I think, is actually a pretty rare thing, and you, you see it tend to you tend to see it in the lives of the saints. If you want to read a good chapter on this, read um, what's his book? A theologian, Marian theologian, um, Tom Dubay, Father Thomas Dubay, is called Fire Within. Is the uh, the book chapter fifteen? I think so. It's the last chapter, and it's the spiritual friendships of Saint Teresa of Avila and Saint John of the Cross. Now, Saint Teresa of Avila was fifty-two when she met Saint John of the Cross for the first time, who was twenty-five. And you might say it's more of a brotherly sister or of a mother-son kind of relationship. But Saint Saint Teresa of Avila was a pretty strikingly beautiful woman. And so she probably would have looked younger, and and I think they actually saw each other more as brother and sister. Saint John of the Cross had a tremendous love for Saint Teresa of Avila. He never went anywhere without a portrait of her, and so he he um, he loved her deeply. And he also loved a lot of women. He was particularly popular with women. A lot of his work was spiritual direction with the Carmelite sisters. So he was a, a discalced Carmelite, and he would look after them. But what are the conditions? For such a friendship, see, such a, a spiritual friendship is not just on a horizontal level. You, we can have a brotherly sisterly friendship that is, you know, it might be pretty close, but if it's deeply, deeply intimate, it's sooner or later going to become romantic. And so, at that level, the brother. That's why I say you've got to guard the heart. Whereas in the spiritual friendship, it's there isn't so much the need for guarding the heart. That doesn't mean that, that the pair involved can't choose to go in the wrong direction. But it's because their love for each other is born of love of God. So it's like having two ashtrays on a table, on a tablecloth. And I pull the tablecloth up. And as I raise it towards heaven, the ashtrays come together. In a spiritual friendship, that's what happened, that's what's happening between the man and woman in question. That's why we tend to find them typically amongst the saints, because they're both holy, they both love God deeply, and they both have a high degree of human emotional maturity. And these are the two conditions that Father Thomas Dubay actually gives, a high degree of holiness, so seeking God fervently, deeply, and then secondly, having a high degree of maturity. But God must be the one to unite them. And if he doesn't, so in other words, it's, it is a gift there. Not that other relationships aren't a gift as well, but if God doesn't grant this gift, then the relationship really can't exist with that same intensity. Because in a spiritual friendship, a real spiritual friendship, there's a deep intimacy that's there. It really is a deep intimacy. Let me tell you some of these. I mean, um, St. Catherine, St. Teresa of Avila loved another priest, her confessor, Father Gratian. And she loved him, really loved him. In her letters, she's... It's obvious that she loves him. And she told him on one occasion, you know, Father, how much I love you. And I think she was telling him through the grill or whatever. And, and he thought, he misunderstood her. And he said, oh, sister, you should be directing this love, this affection towards God. And she says, oh, I love you, Father, but I love God a thousand times more. You know? Oh, fine. Deflate him. Uh, but, but, and I'm sure he wasn't deflated. He, he was probably very relieved to see by that. Saint uh, Catherine of Siena, writing to Blessed Raymond of Capua, who was her confessor. 
And, and you can see, you know, the confessor, I think, he's getting to know the soul very deeply. And she writes on one occasion, she was only 33 when she died. And she says to him on one of her letters, we love each other more than any two people in the world. And then she starts apologizing because she thinks she's transgressed some propriety. And she says, oh, but what can I say? Love is my excuse. You know? Um, or uh, saint... And typically, younger people think they can have these relationships. But in the opinion of Father Thomas de Bay, and I agree with him, I don't think it's possible. It's often uh, too... Um, intertwined with romantic love, that there's just an inability to discern this. And it makes sense. I mean, if, if the average age for emotional literacy, being able to read how we're feeling, is 28, then it makes sense that these sorts of relationships are going to exist, and with the rare exception, you know, in the 40s and 50s and beyond. That that's, that's what it's going to be like. What are some other cases that uh, of these relationships? St. Francis and St. Clair. Now, so for instance, they clearly loved each other deeply, but how often do you think they saw each other? Once a year. Once a year. And St. Francis was actually very careful not to be seen with Sinclair. Now, partly that's because in the, uh, in the 12, when did he live? In the 1100s or 1200s, that would have been sort of, you know, forbidden kind of thing. But, you know, he was, he was careful of that. Um, most of these relationships are conducted through letter writing. But it doesn't mean that it just is exclusive to that. Because in these relationships too, I mean, as I mentioned, St. Francis de Sales, St. Jane Francis de Chantal, there also has to be, if this emotional maturity is there, there has to be a proper sexual integrity. Because the man and the woman, in being saints, you see, that part of the thing of sanctity is that there is a proper incarnation. Many think that sanctity is just the effort of the mind and the will. That's false. Sanctity, heroic virtue, is also is molding the, the affections properly. And that means absorbing and integrating the whole of sexuality. Because God's not just interested in our souls. He's interested in our bodies. And he wants every part of us. And so in these saints, that has happened. And that's why they can love each other in a brotherly, sisterly way. And, and show affection towards each other, and, and that affection is not designed in a, in a disordered kind of way. Um, so, if you want one of those friendships, pray for it, but God may not grant it, because it's pretty rare. But certainly, brotherly and sisterly friendships, in God, in Christ, seek those, because I think he gives those to everyone who asks. But we also must work towards them. And anyway, I've talked enough. So thank you. Good night. Book. Our questions. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father Mark De Batista. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.